Our Old Testament reading this morning is Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. It's found on page 724 of the Bibles found in the pews in front of you. This is God's word to us. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is God's word to us, the word of the Lord. Our gospel reading this morning is Matthew 23, 27 and 28. It's found on page 829 of the Bibles found in the pews in front of you. This is God's word to us. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The word of the Lord. This morning's, uh, our sermon text and New Testament reading is from Romans 7, 1 through 6, and that's found on page 943 of the Bibles uh, in the pew. And uh, let us pay close attention because this is God's word to us this morning. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Word of the Lord. A couple weeks ago, we had a men's retreat, and our men's retreat speaker referenced a a scene from the movie Tombstone. If you're familiar with Tombstone, it was an early 90s Western movie, classic, um, Oscar snub for Best Picture that year. but it stars Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday and Kurt Russell as Wyatt Earp. And basically, in this movie, Wyatt um, wants to lead a peaceful life with his brothers. They move to a town. There's a gang there called the Cowboys. They're vile, they're ruthless, they're murderous. And so soon, Wyatt gets pulled in. He becomes a U.S. Marshal. And it is his mission, along with his posse, to eradicate the Cowboys from existence. And so uh, there's this scene later in the movie. Uh, when they've been pursuing the Cowboys and fighting back and forth. And finally, the new leader of the Cowboy gang 
Johnny Ringo, who in the, in the movie personifies death and evil. Um, he is the quickest gun, um, and everyone is terrified of him, and he, he kills uh, ruthlessly and without purpose. And he sends a message to Wyatt and says, hey, you know what? Instead of everybody chasing each other, let's just finish this. You and me meet up here at this time, and we're going to have a duel. And so the only person who could potentially beat him in a gunfight is Doc Holliday, and he is laying in bed with tuberculosis um, on death's doorstep. And there's this great scene where Wyatt is sitting, uh, getting ready in the room while Doc is laying in bed, and he's getting ready to go get dressed and face what he is sure will be um, his impending doom because um, he, he asks Doc, he says, uh, there's no way I can beat him, is there? And Doc says, no, no, you can't. And so he, he leaves, and we think that Doc is, you know, about to pass away. And uh, the, one of the next scenes we see is Johnny Ringo standing at the place where the duel is, is going to happen. And we see this figure, uh, we think, is Wyatt walking out of the shadows to face him. And, when, and Johnny Ringo says, I didn't think you'd have the nerve to show up. And then when he raises his head, you see under the brim of his hat that it's not Wyatt, it's Doc. Doc had gotten up, put on Wyatt's U.S. Marshal badge, and gone to fight him in his place because he knew that his friend could not beat him. So Doc is victorious, and as he's laying the U.S. Marshal badge on top of Johnny Ringo uh, to signify that the debt has been paid, um, this... this, this um, duel that Wyatt is obligated to um, has been fulfilled. We see Wyatt running up to find to his surprise that um, his death has already been defeated. And this is a really powerful and poignant picture of the reality for those of us who are in Christ. Um, We have this enemy, the law, is in master over us, and our sin and death has prevented us from ever being able to keep the law. And our blood is required for that. God's wrath is resting on all of those who are lawbreakers, which is every single one of us after the fall. And Christ came and took on flesh and fulfilled our obligation so that now we are free and we don't have to worry anymore. There, there will, will be no reckoning with the law because it has already been fulfilled in Christ. But the reason that Paul is writing this passage is because the people that he is writing to in Rome, just like us, often fall right back into slavery to this thing that has no power over their lives anymore. Um, He's writing because in our flesh, in our pride and unbelief, we walk back into slavery of the law, into this fear of judgment and death, and trying to keep the law on our own accord, apart from God, independent of him. And Paul is saying to them and to us, this is a matter of life and death. This is so dangerous because you are alienating yourself from God when you do this. And there's three aspects of this freedom that Christ brings us uh, that Paul is highlighting here. Um, The first is that it is necessary. The second is that it is relational. And the third is that it is empowering. And so we're going to unpack that. Um, And so first... The freedom that Christ brings us is necessary. Um, Before we dig into the passage here, um, 
it would do us well, it would serve us well to go back and have a little refresher on the law. Um, so starting in Genesis 2.17, God tells our first parents, Adam and Eve, um, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And so our first parents eat of the tree, and what God says comes true. There's spiritual death. There is eternal separation from God, a chasm that, that they could not cross. They're alienated from God, and they're now under his wrath. And as our representatives, so are we. So all of human history now is this picture of man trying to justify himself apart from God. Um, moving on, uh, he gives us a more full picture of what it means to live in right relationship with him and to know him and to obey him in Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13, where he says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him and serve him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. See, God did something um, in the garden, he instituted a new way that he was foreshadowing, even in Genesis 3, of how we might have relationship with him. And it has nothing to do with our own performance. And it has everything to do with the sacrifice of his son who would be coming years later. And he's foreshadowing this, and he has always invited his people to live by grace, to live by grace because we are unable to satisfy the law's demands. We are unable to keep the law. And so um, he tells us, Paul tells us in Romans 3, 19 and 20, um, the purpose of the law. The, the law was to give us a picture of God. It's to give us a picture of holiness, and God is holy in perfection. It's to give us a picture of how we were originally created to live, um, but it's also given us as a mirror. And Paul says this in Romans 3, 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so what Paul's telling us there is that one of the primary reasons God gave us the law is to act as a mirror, to show us how desperately we are in need of God's grace and mercy because there is no way that we can keep the law. Uh, there is no way that we can keep the outward law, but that's not even the extent of it um, because it's not just outward. In that passage from Deuteronomy, and then Jesus says it again in his ministry in the Gospels, we are to love the Lord our God always with all of our hearts that our entire life is to be a response to God being the deepest love that we have. And that is impossible for those of us, being all of us, who have been alienated from God, and, and God tells us we are now his enemies. We don't love him. We don't want to serve him. In fact, we want to get out from under him because we want to be our own gods. Um, and I think it's important to note that there's two different ways in which we do that. Um, the first is by making our own law. Um, so there, there are those who are separated from Christ who know that they are, and they are um, out the door, and they are trying to live life on their own terms. But even those people have to come up with a law for themselves of what it means to be a good person and how to live. And so um, it depends, you know, how, where you are on the spectrum of conservative versus liberal. 
your code that you come up for yourself is going to look different. If you're more on the conservative end of things, then your code is going to include things like people need to be self-sufficient, people need to be moral, people need to be punctual, people need to watch the Bill Gaither Gospel Hour. Um, that's, the, that's the rules that the conservatives make for themselves to live by and feel good about themselves and look down on everybody who doesn't fit there. Okay? On the liberal end of things, it's going to look like being tolerant. Being, any idea that anyone has is great, and anyone who says otherwise um, is hateful. Um, or it's being green, driving a Prius. Um, you know, we, we all come up with these little laws that we have to live by, and we look down on the people who don't measure up because it makes us feel good about ourselves. It helps us continue to live in this illusion that we can justify ourselves apart from God. Um, the second way that we do that, so the first way is creating our own law. The second is editing God's law. Um, clearly, there's no way that anyone, if, if they're in their right mind, would ever think that they'd be able to fully keep God's law. But a lot of us still live that way. So what we do is we do what the Pharisees did. We take parts of the law that we like or parts that are easier for us to keep, and we make that the whole of the law. So we truncate it and edit it down to something that makes us feel good about ourselves because we're able to keep it, and it helps us to look down on other people and say, you know, Lord, I'm thankful I'm not like them because they don't do these things. They're not punctual. Um, they don't memorize scripture or win Bible sword drills or things like that. So Tim Keller explains this really well in his book, The Prodigal God, which I would highly recommend if you haven't read that. Um, and he's talking about the story of the prodigal son. And he talks about the younger brother and the elder brother essentially being in the same place. And he says it like this. The hearts of the two brothers in Jesus' parable were the same. Both sons resented their father's authority and sought ways of getting out from under it. Each one rebelled, but one did so by being very bad, and the other by being extremely good. Both were alienated from the Father's heart. Both were lost sons. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from Him either by breaking all of His rules or keeping them all diligently. And Paul is telling us that we are not to live under any false pretenses that we are all in trouble. We are all guilty of trying to keep our own laws and justify ourselves apart from God, and we will all suffer the same fate if that's where we stay, which is God's wrath. Um, he says in verse 1 of our passage, do you not know, brothers, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? But he says something very important there. The law is binding on everyone who lives. So we're not going to be judged by our edited down version of God's law, and we're not going to be judged by the new law that we came up with on our own. We're going to be judged according to God's full law and the completeness of it. And, and we're not going to get to be the judge of how we did. We don't get to grade our own papers. The God of the universe is going to be the judge. Um, and, and just a, a preview of coming attractions, it is not going to go well. Um, verse 3 talks about um, the same thing in Paul's example that he's giving with the marriage laws. He says that this woman, um, if she goes and lives with another man while her husband's still alive, she will be called an adulteress. And we know from other passages of Scripture what happens to adulteresses. They get stoned to death. They get condemned. Um, and he is saying 
that those of us who are under the law, bound by the law, will suffer that same fate. Um, We will be called a lawbreaker and we will be condemned. And then in verse 5, he shows us that what he said in Romans 3, 19 and 20 is true, that the law is there to show us how desperately we need God's grace. He says in verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Our entire existence apart from Christ is completely offensive to God. It's not, our problem is not that we lust a little bit too much or we drink a little bit too much. Our problem is the entirety of our lives outside of faith in Christ and union with Christ is entirely offensive to God because the entirety of our lives in that case is trying to justify ourselves apart from God and be our own God and stay independent from him. Um, Matthew Henry um, unpacks verse 5 in colorful language that I think is helpful. He says, The law, by commanding, forbidding, and threatening, corrupt and fallen man, but offering no grace to cure and strengthen, only stirs up the corruption, and like the sun shining on a dunghill, excites and draws out the filthy steams. And so Paul is telling us, you need to understand that you are bound and you are in trouble and you are unable to keep God's law. Um, We struggle to grasp this. I struggle to grasp this all the time. Um, Ways in which you might see that this is um, something that we are not understanding. Um, Are we graceless in the application of some law? Do we have some law that we are trying to justify ourselves by? And are we graceless in um, applying that law to other people? Do we feel proud of ourselves for keeping it, and we talk badly about the people who don't keep it and what bad people they are and how they're the problem? Um, And if only everybody could be more like me, um, then we'd be in a good place. Um, Or, you know, what about our prayers? Are our prayers just a thinly veiled request to have control over our own lives? God, please give me this thing so that I never have to come back here again. I don't ever want to depend on you again. And and if we're honest, a lot of our prayers are that very thing. Give me what I need right now. I'm feeling a need. Make that need full so that I can get out of here and go on living life the way that I want to. Um, This, as God usually does, um, he made this very evident in my life this week. Um, as I was preparing for my sermon, um, a couple you know, things that were not scheduled came up in my life that were very um, time-intensive. Um, and I thought, okay, wow, I'm not going to have a lot of time to prepare my sermon as much as I thought I did. So um, where's the first place my heart goes? It's not, um, Lord, you've called me to preach this sermon, and you've also called me to these other things. So I'm going to trust you that whatever happens is your will. You're going to prepare me to the extent that you need me prepared, and I'm going to live in the joy of knowing that I'm your son. That's not what happened. Um, what happened was my heart immediately goes back to being a slave of the law. Um, one of the ways that I'm going to be judged is how good the sermon is and how many people come up to me and say, man, great job, or wow, you're really good at that, or I like hearing this. And so my mind immediately starts going to, oh my gosh, I, I can't, you know, I don't have enough time to prepare. This is going to go poorly. And, um, and God just, you know, is quietly knocking on my heart's door saying, man, even here, like you're preparing to preach on this very thing, and, and your, your heart is, is going right back to slavery, to the law. 
Um, you don't need this to go any certain way. In fact, what you need to do is pray that I would use this in the lives of these people because um, you're already okay. I love you. Um, and that brings us to our next point, that this freedom that Christ um, effectuated for us through his death and resurrection is very, very relational. And I will want to look at uh, verses 3 and 4 in our passage. Um, again, it says, uh, according to the law, this woman, if she's married and, and her husband's still alive, she marries somebody else, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Um, this is something really important for us to understand that this is not just a get-out-of-jail-free card that God bestows upon us and then walks away from our lives. The whole point of Christ taking our place is so that he could redeem us for relationship with himself, to be united with him forever, to love us the way that a husband loves a wife, to be wedded to us forever. And again, that's, you know, anytime we see a marriage or, or a wedding that is beautiful and is kind of the highest version of a human marriage that we can see, um, that is a picture of an imperfect version, but a, a version nonetheless of Christ's love for us. And we see this in a, a passage that I'm sure most of you are very familiar with, but uh, Paul says this in Ephesians 5, 25 through 32. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Um, marriage can be one of the most beautiful and freeing and joyful gifts that a person can ever be given. Um, it can also be one of the most poignant reminders of the brokenness uh, of our world and of each other. Um, but when marriage is working well, um, I'll never forget a picture that God gave me and in, in my wife um, probably three or four months into marriage. It was just, he just hit me with this realization of there is now this person who knows me completely, who knows me uh, as well as any person can at this point in my life. Um, she knows me intimately, and there is um, no physical, spiritual, emotional, mental uh, way that I am concealed from her. I'm fully naked in front of her, and I'm fully loved by her. And she's saying, I see all the parts of you that are ugly, and, um, and I still love you, and I'm going to stay with you and continue to love you. And that is a powerful, powerful thing. That will change a person's life. That will fill you with courage and fill you with joy and change the trajectory of how you spend your days. Um, one of my favorite parts about being a dad right now, I've got a, a little boy named Kess who's turning three in a couple days, and, and we've got him going to this uh, tumbling class at this gymnastics place. 
And there's a place where all the parents can sit up in the balcony and look down on the kids. And, uh, you know, they're just running around crazy and, ro- you know, rolling over stuff and jumping on the trampoline. And, and every once in a while, he will look up um, to see if I'm watching him. And I will smile at him and give him a thumbs up and, and wave to him. And I can see the change that happens in his face. He, he lights up. He is filled with courage. And he's reminded, oh, yeah, my dad loves me. I have a dad, and he loves me, and I'm okay. And then he goes on, and he, and he plays with you know, extra energy and fervor because of that. And I love getting to play that role. And I love what that reminds me of, that that's also true for me, that I have a Heavenly Father who loves me and is approving of me, and it's not dependent on my performance. And when we get that, that will change our lives. That will change everything. Um, so here's a litmus test for you of whether that's a reality or not. Two, two things. One is, what is your worship like? What is your relationship with God like? Is it seeing what scripture you need to study today, going through a prayer list, um, emotionless, just checking off the boxes of what it means to be a dutiful Christian? Um, or is it full of emotion? Does it reflect the fact that it's a relationship with a person who is interacting with you, who is loving you, who you are thankful for, and who you think are increasingly is beautiful and wonderful? And does that stir your heart? Are you ever moved to tears? Are you ever moved at all? And certainly, our relationship with God is not dependent upon our emotion. But wow, if there's zero emotion, then that is, we're not in a healthy place. Second little litmus test is, um, what question do you find yourself asking? Through your life, through your relationships, through your work, whatever it is, are you kind of essentially always asking, like, am I Okay. How am I doing? Do I measure up? Um, if, if that is something that is a persistent driving force in your life, um, then there's a really good chance that you don't really understand the freedom that God is talking about here. Um, because when we are in our right minds, for those who are in Christ, that question has already been answered forever. And it is not dependent on our performance. So instead of asking, am I okay, it's, it's a thank you that I am okay. Thank you that you love me, and you have bestowed grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy, and I don't know why, but you have desired to bring this lost, broken mess um, into relationship with you, and you are making me like you, and that is amazing. Um, The last point here that Paul is making about this freedom is that it is empowering. And this one is really, really important for us to get because we can actually sort of derail and blow the entirety of what we've just talked about if we get this wrong. Um, In the second half of verse 4, we are told by Paul that Christ redeemed us and joined us to himself so that um, we can bear fruit for God. And then in verse 6 he says, We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so, uh, one just little point to note before we get into this. 
this is not like a, a, an undercover version of slavery. God didn't create us so that we could do his bidding and be his minions. Um, he created us for relationship with him, and it just so happens that the way that we're in right relationship with him and the way that we flourish is by serving him, is by loving him, is by responding to his love. And C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about this uh, very, very well. He says, What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Um, So this is a beautiful thing that God is doing for us. This is not um, just this this hard servitude. Um, He is trying to free us for the fulfilling of our destinies, what we are created for. Um, But again, as I said, this point is really important for us to get because um, a lot of us in this room are are failing to understand the gospel um, without even knowing it. What I mean by that is, we hear that we're free from the law, and then the very next thing we hear is that we've been set free for what? To bear fruit for God and to serve him. And so most of us go right back into slavery, but it's just under new pretenses. We think, okay, yeah, so now there's a new thing i got to do. Okay, good, thank you for saving me from that. Now I've got to pull myself up by my bootstraps and, and bear fruit for God. So i got to go make fruit. Um, and that's how most of us live, really, um, whether we know that or not. But, but that is not at all what Paul is saying. It's very important to understand how we bear fruit, okay? So first, um, from our Old Testament reading, again, from Ezekiel 36, uh, 24 through 27, God tells us how we're going to bear fruit. He says, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the countries, bring you into your own land, sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. And, and listen very closely to this next part. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I'm going to read that last line one more time. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Um, Jesus hits on this same point in Matthew 7, 17, and 18 when he says this. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And what Jesus is saying there is that apart from Christ, apart from his spirit dwelling within us, we are diseased trees. So no matter how you spend your diseased life, whether it's running from God or trying to justify yourself in God's presence, all you're doing, again, verse 5 here too, Paul tells us, is creating bad fruit. It is rotten fruit, and it leads to death. So how do you create good fruit? There's really not much that you do. 
Um, the same way a seed is sown in the soil and grows on its own, um, it, it grows apart from us. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within us, empowering us to bear fruit for God. He gave us a new heart, a new spirit, and it is from that new heart and that new spirit that good fruit naturally grows. And that is so, so, so important for us to understand. Um, we've got to ask ourselves whether we get this or not. And, and a way that we can do that is, um, where does the power for life change come from in your life? Um, is there life change? Because a lot of times what happens is we try to bootstrap on our own, bear fruit in our own power, and what happens? We, we fixate on one or two areas that we notice sin in our lives, and we pick those areas out, and we say, okay, I'm going to create new rules for myself. Okay, I'm drinking too much. So what am I going to do? I'm going to say I can only have two beers, or, you know, I'm, I'm lusting, so I'm not, I'm not going to have a computer, you know, and we come up with these rules. Now, some of these rules are great, but if we think that that is solving our problem, we are sorely mistaken. Because what happens if it's in your own power is you try really hard, really hard, really hard. You see success for a little while on the surface, not in your heart. Um, and then what happens? Then you get worn out and you're out of power and you crash and burn and it's jailbreak and it's right back to where you came from. Um, when you experience life transformation and freedom from sin, what does that produce in you? Does that produce um, pride? Look at me, look what I did. If everybody just tried hard like I did, you know, they wouldn't have this problem anymore. Um, if you try and you fail, does that produce fear and anxiety? Maybe God doesn't love me. Oh my, oh my goodness, you know, I, I, did, I wasn't able to keep up my end of the bargain when I just vowed this new rule that I was going to follow for the rest of my life. Um, or are we like David? Psalm 51, David's prayer of repentance to God. Right after he um, had an affair and murdered the husband of the woman that he had an affair with, he goes to God in prayer, and every single action verb is God. All David says is, I'm full of sin. That's very clear right now. And my mother brought me forth in sin. I have nothing to bring to the table. And what does he ask God to do? You clean me. You cleanse me. You renew a right spirit within me. You hold me up. Don't leave me. All of the action is God's. And when we live like that and we experience transformation, that's going to lead to a different kind of fruit. That's going to lead to love and gratitude. Um, when we still fail, as is going to happen as we still live in these bodies of flesh, there will no longer be that same anxiety and fear. It will be peace. Because we know that our eternal destiny is not dependent on our ability to perfectly keep the law anymore. It's dependent on Christ and what He has already done for us that has been cemented in history for all time and will never change. And God is gently and lovingly transforming us with His power to become the people that He created us to be 
to live with him in perfect relationship forever. Last thing I want to say is um, this is not just like life hack, like tips for living, like, hey, here's, here's some little tidbits to um, not experience so much anxiety or fear or feeling like a, a loser or whatever. Um, this is a matter of life and death. And what do I mean by that? Um, Galatians 5.4 says this. You are severed from Christ. You who, would be, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Paul is telling us, this is your life. Um, it's not like, hey, you can relax and depend on Christ if you want to. When you get tired of working so hard, you know, then you can take a break and let him take over, and then you can get back to working hard in your own power. Um, Paul is saying, if you are still working in your own power, if you do not know uh, the new way of serving in the Spirit, if you do not realize the reality that Christ is your husband who has wedded himself to you and loves you beyond belief, then you are still in your sin, severed from God, because you will never, ever, ever keep the law in your own power. And so as we seek to justify ourselves, um, God is faithful, and he leads us to repentance. And that's his call to us, is to repent of trying so hard to save ourselves, of believing that we need to. Um, when we do that, we dishonor what Christ has done. We call him a liar. Um, we say that we want to have nothing to do with him because we're over here in a corner trying to clean ourselves up on our own instead of trusting in him. And um, last week, I was very thankful for Dave Strunk um, calling Jesus the greater and more perfect Marty McFly because Back to the Future is one of my favorite movies. Um, but here again, Jesus is the greater and more perfect Doc Holliday because he is our friend, because he loves us deeply, and he knew that we would lose that fight. Um, he took our place, and he defeated death for us. John 15, 13 is true. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus is that kind of friend, and he has done this for us, and he invites us into friendship with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that all of these things are true. Thank you that our life, our future, our hope is not dependent upon our strength and our effort. It is entirely dependent upon your spirit, your power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells within those of us who are in Christ. And we will be united with you forever. You will finish your work. You will make us perfect. And we will enjoy eternity with you forever the way that you intended us to live. And that is a great gift, Lord. And you invite us to live that way even now. Lord, break our hearts, open our eyes, show us where we need to repent of trying to be our own righteousness and lovingly lead us back into a life dependent on you. In Jesus' name, amen.